And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence and all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master, fallen, dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the stone images and escaped, escaped to Seira. And it happened when he arrived, that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Thus far the reading of God's word. Beloved of the Lord, when my children were young, one of the things that we did for them on their birthdays was allow them to choose what passage of scripture they wanted me to read for family devotions after the evening meal. And uh, during that time, uh, one of my sons, uh, for several years in a row, 
maybe when he was around six or seven or eight, something like that, uh, he always chose the story of Eglon. Uh, he was fascinated by it, and of course it contains uh, elements that would fascinate young children. There's uh, a hero who is uh, brave and who kills a fat king and leaves him a bloody mess and escapes while people are delaying and then uh, wins a battle, destroying the enemy's army. Uh, what uh, young boy wouldn't like a, an adventure story uh, full of blood and guts like that? But uh, there's more to this story than just the adventure and the, uh, the blood and the guts. Uh, it's a story about God's faithfulness to his people. It's about God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. It's about God keeping his covenant promises even though we break the covenants. He is still faithful. And when they cry out to him, when we cry out to him, he hears us and he saves us. We need to remember that uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says concerning these Old Testament histories that they're written for us, for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. Now these things happened, he says, uh, to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so uh, this, this is a, uh, an account, not just an interesting account, but something that has been recorded for our benefit. Now to benefit from it, I want to take note of uh, three things. First, the, uh, the odious oppressors, and there are three of them. Then the lone warrior, and uh, what his actions uh, represent. And then uh, the fact that he comes afterwards and blows the trumpet and calls the people to come follow him and do a mopping up action after he has slain the enemy leader. First of all, the odious oppressors. And there are three oppressors here. There's Moab, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. Moab, of course, is the leader. And uh, uh, Moab and Ammon, the two of these three, are cousins, so to speak. Moab and Ammon are the descendants of Lot by the immoral activity of Lot's daughters who learned their wicked ways by living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, when we read about Moab and Ammon in the scriptures, we should uh, understand that they are a type of an extension of the culture of those wicked cities. Although Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, uh, the spirit of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the practices and the thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah lives on in uh, Moab and Ammon. Uh, that's confirmed by the fact that when uh, Israel had not yet entered the promised land, uh, Moab, failing to uh, get Balak to uh, curse Israel, discovered another way to get uh, at Israel and destroy Israel, and that was to entice them with sexual immorality. And so the daughters of Moab enticed the uh, Israelite men, and they fell prey to their charms and not only uh, committed immorality with them, but worshiped uh, the Moabite gods. And of course, that caused a plague to break out in Israel, uh, killing many of them, something Moab couldn't accomplish uh, in battle or uh, by hiring a uh, a prophet to, uh, to curse them. Uh, it's also uh, the fact that uh, Moab and Ammon are an extension of 
uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is confirmed in uh, one of the latter prophets, Zephaniah, in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9, where God says he's going to treat Moab and Ammon just like he treated Sodom and Gomorrah. They have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, and so they need to be treated the same way. The Amalekites, the third party of this uh, oppressor, uh, were a group of people who were the first to attack Israel when they left Egypt. They were the ones who attacked from the, from the back and uh, took out the, the old and the weak, the stragglers. And uh, in Deuteronomy 25, we read this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and you shall not forget uh, they fought uh, the Amalekites uh, in the wilderness. Joshua led the battle, but the battle was in the hands of God uh, because Moses was on top of the mountain with his hands lifted up, praying, beseeching God for help. After a while, his arms got tired and he put his arms down and all of a sudden the Amalekites started winning. And so he quick put his arms up and then Joshua was winning. And uh, so when they realized that they had to live moment by moment in dependence upon God, uh, two other men, Aaron and Hur, uh, held up Moses' hands, and in that way, uh, Joshua prevailed, or Israel prevailed. A lesson to us that uh, we are to, as the New Testament says, pray continually, remembering that everything you do needs to be bathed in prayer, and that you cannot succeed at anything uh, without the Lord's help. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And that's still true today. We need to continually live in the presence of God and look to him for help in all that we do and say. Many years later, uh, after this event, uh, Samuel, would, uh, the last judge, would tell King Saul to destroy the Amalekites, something which he uh, uh, didn't do quite as well as God wanted him to do and just helped uh, one of the reasons he was disqualified from being king. But now Eglon, the king of Moab, uh, enlists <coughs> the help of his cousin Ammon and uh, enlists the help of the Amalekites and they go and capture the city of Palms. Now that's Jericho. And Jericho that Joshua marched around seven times, uh, leading the Israelites to march around seven times, and the walls came tumbling down. Although the city was destroyed, nevertheless, at the, uh, the site of the city or nearby, uh, a new city was built without walls until the time of Ahab. Ahab was the one who rebuilt the walls and experienced the curse that Joshua uttered on anyone who would rebuild the walls of the city of Jericho. But there was, there was a, it was a strategic location, and it didn't take long for people to start building again at that location. And uh, there Eglon comes and builds himself a, a fortress or a palace uh, so that he'd have a place in Israel, in their territory, to go 
when he wanted to go there and collect tribute or taxes from the people. And uh, that's where we find him in this story. He's uh, left Moab, crossed over the uh, west over the Jordan River, and is at Jericho, uh, where he wants to receive from the Israelites uh, their tribute. Now, there is a message from God in those he raises up to oppress his people. Uh, some weeks ago, uh, in March, the last time I, I preached for you, we looked at uh, the beginning of chapter 3 here and saw that the, uh, the first oppressor came from Mesopotamia. He was the king of Mesopotamia, and that was significant because Abraham came from Mesopotamia. And uh, they're now living under the p same political jurisdiction as Abraham did. They weren't, uh, the Israelites weren't taken back to Mesopotamia, uh, but uh, Mesopotamia came to them, and they were living under its uh, political rule as Abraham had done, a kind of foreshadowing of the fact that one day they would be taken back there, as, as indeed happened when Nebuchadnezzar took the Israelites back to uh, Babylon. Uh, it's an undoing of the covenant, uh, taking you back where you started as if you had never left. Uh, they uh, weren't taken back physically, but they were politically again under that rule. And it was a warning to them that if they continue this line of behavior, uh, it would uh, result in God uh, uh, perhaps undoing the covenant and bringing them back there. Uh, it was the threat of it. Well, now there is significance also in this book. Uh, in these uh, rulers uh, that God uh, strengthened and used to uh, humble Israel. Uh, first of all, Israel is greatly humbled by the fact that uh, their first victories are overturned. The first victory that they ever fought, that they ever experienced was against Amalek in the desert. But now Amalek is ruling over them. And their first victory in the promised land was Jericho, and now they are bringing tribute to a foreign king who is in Jericho. Uh, all their first victories are being overturned. You know, it's one thing to, uh, to lose to uh, a battle with, with a, say, a, a sports team, a, lose, a, lose a game to a team that you've never beaten before. Uh, they've always beaten you in the past, and they're stronger than you, and, well, there's you kind of resign yourself to the fact that if you play them again, you'll probably lose again, and you don't get too upset about it. But if you played a team in baseball or, or volleyball or whatever, soccer, and, and you, you trounce them, you, you beat them badly, and, and you triumphed over them, and then the next time you meet, they beat you. That's humiliating, that's humbling, that's a, a cause for great grief and sorrow, and, and that's what God is doing here. But not only that, the character of these people are cruel, is uh, of the character of, of Moab and of Amalek and Ammon is that they are a cruel pre people, a vicious people, an immoral people. They have no fear of God, and uh, God uh, raises up that kind of person to rule over them. Uh, whenever God does that, he, he does it specifically. You know, this didn't happen by accident. Uh, we read in Scripture, God raised up uh, Pharaoh and God sold them into the hands of uh, Cushan Rishishayim 
and now God strengthens Eglon. These rulers are there by design, by God's design. He raised up cruel, vicious, immoral leaders to rule over his people Israel. Why would he do that? Well, he's telling them that this is the kind of leader you deserve. This is the kind of leader you deserve because this is the kind of people that you have become. Uh, when the Israelites began to intermarry with the Canaanites, as uh, we see in chapter uh, 2 of this uh, uh, book, uh, they became like the Canaanites. Uh, they adopted Canaanite culture. They became immoral. Uh, all kinds of uh, sexual immorality involved in the worship of Baals. And they became uh, cruel and oppressive. And so God gives them that kind of leader. Today, if uh, we are unhappy with the leaders that we have in our nation, then we must look closely at ourselves as a nation and ask ourselves, what kind of people have we become? If we have leaders who are sexually immoral, is that because we are a sexually immoral people? If we have leaders who uh, covet bribes and are dishonest, is that because we are a people who love money and uh, who use uh, unethical and illegal ways to, to get our riches? Uh, God gives us leaders who are a reflection of our character as a nation, and that should uh, cause us to wake up, <laughs> humble ourselves, and repent of our sins. These evil leaders don't just happen. God gives them, and uh, even today, the kind of leaders we have are the kind of leaders God has put there, and uh, he put them, has put them there to teach us a lesson about ourselves. Now, this oppression, we're told, lasted 18 years, which is a long time. It is a testimony as to how hardened Israel had become in their sin and in their rebellion. But after 18 years, they finally, uh, in the words of the, prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son, they came to their senses. They realized that intermarrying with the Canaanites was not a good thing, that there needed to be a, a distinction with them. And uh, they remembered their covenant God, and they, they realized that Baal and Asherah were not going to help them. And so they... They turned away from the Baal and the Asherah. They cried out to the God of their fathers. And lo and behold, God heard them and sent them a deliverer. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who wakes up to the fact that they are sinners, unable to save themselves, who then looks to God, to give the help that we cannot give ourselves, everyone who cries out to him and looks to the Savior whom God has provided is assured that your sins are forgiven and that he will save you. It doesn't matter how long you have rebelled. It doesn't matter how hard you rebelled, how stubborn you were. If you humble your heart, confess your sins, 
and look to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are assured that he will save you. God heard and he sent a deliverer. Now the deliverer he sent was this lone warrior, Ehud. He's a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And that left-handedness is not only a characteristic of the Benjaminites, but it's important in this story as well because left-handedness in most of those cultures was considered to be a bad thing and anyone showing left-handed tendencies as an infant would be taught uh, to use their right hand. And so when Ehud stood before a king and uh, reached uh, to his uh, left thigh, he, uh, to his right thigh with his left hand, he didn't suspect that he was reaching for a weapon because no soldier would carry a weapon in his left hand. Uh, it was part of the deception that uh, Eglon would not expect someone to wield a weapon with a left hand. Well, uh, he is the one who has been chosen to bring Israel's tribute to Eglon, which means he's not a private citizen. He's not just an ordinary person showing up to pay his taxes. He's bringing the tribute for all of Israel. Israel has, in essence, elected him their leader, chosen him to be their leader. And indeed, in uh, some of the genealogies, he's uh, called to be the father of the heads of the tribes. Uh, so uh, he's the head of the heads, as it were. And uh, so he is their representative coming before Eglon. Uh, the, the, the fascinating thing is that he, he comes and he does this alone. Uh, some have uh, criticized him for using a concealed weapon to assassinate a lawful leader, but uh, we should not think ill of Ehud. Deceit and trickery are perfectly acceptable in war. Remember how God instructed uh, Joshua to deceive the citizens of Ai. And uh, so deceit in war is not uh, a sin. It is uh, divinely sanctioned and approved. And uh, Eglon, or, or, uh, Ehud was no ordinary citizen. He was a leader of the people. God had uh, said that he would leave Canaanites in the land to teach the people and to teach each generation to do war. So they know they, they were supposed to be at war with these people, and Eglon had no business setting foot in Israelite territory. And so uh, Ehud is perfectly justified in going against the enemy's king. But he goes one-on-one, man-on-man, and uh, he defeats the king. Now, he, uh, he does it in a way that... Uh, brings shame and disgrace upon the king. Uh, the king is uh, a huge man, a fat man, the Bible says. Uh, that was something respected as a symbol of great strength. The bigger the person, the, the more power they represented. It was symbolic of his power, but he's uh, reduced to a bloody, uh, stinking mass on the floor. Now, what we should see in Ehud here is one who foreshadows Jesus Christ, who went one-on-one -on -one against Satan and brought him also to a shameful, disgraceful end. 
Ehun made a spectacle, bringing shame and disgrace on, uh, on Eglon and his followers. Uh, it was not the sword that came out, but the contents of his bowels that came out that created a stench so that his uh, courtiers, his servants, thought uh, he was relieving himself, and that was what gave time for uh, Ehud to escape. Well, in the same way, Christ has triumphed over Satan and made a spectacle of him. All through his ministry, Christ triumphed over the head of wickedness. In uh, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, uh, But if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Well, Jesus is saying, I'm the strong man and I'm plundering Satan's house. And the way that I plunder Satan's house is I first bind him. And because I have bound him, I can now steal his citizens and bring them out of Satan's house and bring them into my kingdom. And it's that uh, that shows you that the kingdom of God uh, is among you. Uh, the true king against the usurper king and uh, is Jesus Christ against Satan. But not only through his ministry, especially at the cross, Christ defeated Satan. In Colossians 2 verse 15, we read, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In Christ, we have a great hero who has defeated once and for all our enemy Satan and delivered us from his oppressive power. If the young boys and uh, even the girls like stories about heroes, Jesus Christ is your hero. He went to battle and he fought, and he fought for you to kill your enemy, Satan, and to deliver you from Satan's power, to deliver you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, and to make you a child of the king. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. Thou is, that is why he has defeated Satan, so that we might be set free. We are no longer bound in chains to evil or to Satan. The power of sin is broken. The power of the devil is broken. The power of death and grave is overcome because Christ, our leader, has gone against the enemy and defeated him. But now once Ehud kills Eglon and escapes, he goes to Gilgal where Israel's reproach and shame had been rolled away. That's where they had been uh, circumcised when they came out of uh, Egypt. Uh, he... Uh, left the king in shame and disgrace and went to the place that remembers where Israel's shame and disgrace had been removed and uh, where they had been uh, sanctified and set apart again as the people of God. And there he blows the trumpet. He sounds the trumpet. He is like a herald, uh, heralding a message. Uh, and he proclaims the good news. Your enemy is dead. Come, follow me. And the people came and followed him, and they went to the fords of the Jordan River because, again, Moab is on the east side, Israel is on the west side, 
And uh, with their leader dead, an army of 10,000 soldiers now wants to get back to their own territory. And so they go to the place where the Moabite soldiers are going to ford, and they meet them there, and they destroy them to a man. 10,000 is a, a number of completeness. The whole army has been uh, demolished and destroyed. But again, in Ehud's call to arms, we must hear our Savior calling us to follow him, taking up a two-edged sword as Ehud had, a two-edged sword which is the word of God. Uh, in the book of Revelation, the picture that John sees of Jesus is one with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And Eglon had a two-edged sword, and the book of uh, Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword. And so we're to take up the Word of God, the two-edged sword, and fight now against the remnants of Satan's army as Christ builds his kingdom among us and as Christ builds his church among us. Because Satan has been defeated, the Apostle Paul could write to the church at Rome in Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because Christ has defeated him, you can defeat the forces of evil as well. And so we are called to wage war today. You and I are called to be soldiers in the battle. Children, young people, you too are called to fight the good fight of faith. Second Corinthians says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our message to the world is not convert or die. Our message to the world is Christ has set you free. And in Christ, your sins are forgiven. We have a message. We have news. We have a word. And that word goes out and it conquers hearts and it conquers minds and it takes them out of darkness and it brings them into the light. And therefore, we're told to put on the whole armor of God and take our stand against the forces of wickedness in heavenly realms against which we must wrestle from day to day and do battle with the forces of evil. Since you have been set free from Satan's enslaving power, you are able to do battle, fighting against uh, evil. And the place, of course, where to begin that fight against evil is in your own heart, putting to death your tendency to live like a Canaanite. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10 and 12 through 16. Begin the battle by putting your Canaanite nature to death. Get rid of the fruits of the flesh. Galatians 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh where the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You know, as I read from Galatians 5, the fruits of the flesh, it's like a contemporary description of our culture and especially of uh, Pride Month uh, now, thankfully, behind us, but uh, certainly uh, uh, not behind us culturally. Uh, that's the culture we live in. There's nothing new under the sun. We should not be distressed that, that uh, the world is, is, you know, just disintegrating around us and there's no hope. It, it was evil. It was evil when Cain slay, uh, killed Abel. It was uh, uh, full of violence in the days of Noah and there was sexual immorality present uh, everywhere in the ancient world as it is now. And we have the answer. We have the answer. It is the two-edged sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that enables you to break free from that culture. And once you have broken free from that culture, enables you and empowers you to help others break free from that culture. Carry on the battle by giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord, the building of His church, the only hope for a depraved culture is a faithful church fulfilling its mandate. The only hope. Politics is not our hope. We need to be involved in politics, but that's not going to change people's hearts. What changes people's hearts is the gospel. What changes what people need is the church. We're Christ's army following him, following him based on his victory and to an even greater victory. In Revelation 19, John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and Righteousness, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's us, following him in fine linen, the righteousness of Jesus Christ on white horses. We follow our leader as Israel followed Ehud and put to death the Moabite army, so we follow Jesus, putting to death the Canaanite within and liberating the Canaanites around us so that they can know the true God and worship and serve him. May God give us grace to see in Ehud's destruction of Eglon, Christ's victory over Satan, and to hear in Ehud's summon Christ's call to serve in his army. The decisive battle is won. The enemy is in disarray. Go forward into battle, hating sin and seeking to completely remove it from our lives and from the world by winning the world to Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this fascinating history of your people in ancient times, which is so relevant for our own. We pray that we may see in Christ our hero and follow him into battle, putting to death our old nature and enabling others also to come out of the darkness and into the light. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.